Thank you for that intro, Tigger. You know, last week we opened with Winnie the Pooh. It's only fair that Tigger gets equal time. And you are, yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens and some of the hijinks of Christopher Robin. And a huge thank you to Jim Cummings for those incredible, that incredible Tigger voicing. Uh, as, as all of you know, if you listen to the show or if you are fans of Winnie the Pooh, Jim Cummings has been voicing Tigger and Pooh for decades now. Uh, he is synonymous with them, as well as many other characters, uh, animated characters out there. But welcome. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my interviews and movie reviews in the U.S. and abroad, around the globe, 24-7, in print and online. But always on BehindTheLensOnline.net and every Monday right here, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on AdrenalineRadio.com. And hey, if you're listening, if you're new to the show, welcome, welcome. But also, you can hop onto Facebook, onto the AdrenalineRadio.com page, and you can watch the Facebook live stream of today's show. And when you watch, you can see all of the incredible, incredible merchandise courtesy of Disney swag at press junkets. So a huge shout out to all of my PR peeps at Disney for these lovely, lovely things. Uh, and of course, I have to say some of my favorites are the incredible Christopher Robin mug and a poo picnic blanket. Come on. You always got to go on a picnic. You always need a blanket and you always need something to remind you of poo. And of course, the signature Winnie the Pooh red. So, you know, look, there's a lot, and there's a lot of great merchandise out in stores for all of the Disney and Marvel films this summer, from Ant-Man and the Wasp to Incredibles 2 to Christopher Robin. Uh, Avengers Infinity War is now uh, available on digital. It's coming up on Blu-ray, but there's plenty of that merchandise if you hit uh, Disney stores. And I have to get, I have to say, I finally ventured into the one that is over in the Century City Shopping Mall, and... If you're going to a Disney store in Southern California, that is the one you want to go to. That's all I'm going to say. And yes, I left my Marvel Captain America credit card at home. Thank God. Uh, but on today's show, a fun, a fun show again, we're going to hear what director Mark Forrester had to say to me during the recent press day for Christopher Robin about embarking on this film, how his daughter influenced him. Um, and other, and of course, getting to work with Richard Sherman, who came up with three new songs for this film. And, you know, Disney and Pooh devotees know Richard Sherman uh, is synonymous with music in Disney films and did do the songs along with his brother for the animated Winnie the Pooh films that have preceded this live-action Christopher Robin. But joining us live today... Very excited, and I have to give a huge shout out 
to my pal George Pinocchio at ABC7 for this one. Um, a producer, ma- talent manager turned author, uh, Norm Olajim. And if I screwed up pronouncing your name, Norm, you can correct me when you call in at the quarter hour mark. Norm is joining us today to talk about his book, First Time Author. It is called From Me to You. From Me to You, Stories About Life, Love, Family, Faith, and How to Negotiate a Bigger Allowance. These are all blogs or love letters to his youngest daughter that he wrote a number of years ago. And now, and when she turned 18, he presented these to her. Little ruminations on life, uh, truly how to get a bigger allowance, and lots of daddy-daughter things in addition to navigating the trials and tribulations of every day and future existence. It is, you need tissues when you read it, let me just tell you. So I'm very thrilled we're going to have Norm here talking about the book. And then also, you heard about the film last week from actress Heather McComb, Pretty Bad Actress, the man who came up with the film. Writer, director, and editor Nick Scowen is going to join us at the halfway mark. But right now, why don't we jump right in and return to the Hundred Acre Wood and take a listen to my exchanges and conversations with Christopher Robin director Mark Forster. Well, congratulations, Mark. Thank you. This is pure enchantment. Thank you. But that's what I was trying to Well, <laughs> you succeeded. Um, you know, I was wondering what was going to happen with this film after last year's Goodbye, Christopher Robin and where we were going to go with this, and to see this story pick up after the House of Pooh Corner when mm. when Christopher Robin goes off to school. Yeah, that was the idea you got. It's, it's just absolutely well, thank you. perfect. But oh, we just made my day. <laughs> but, Can we have more round tables like that? <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, what you and your cinematographer, Matthias, have done, yeah. visually, for your visual tonal bandwidth, and then also using the stuffed animals which then helps the computer animation afterwards so they really get the feel of you know the weight and the arms and legs and things it just makes it all so lifelike that when you have people on the street seeing poo talking and it's very believable everything has now come to life it's no longer in the imagination it's that perfect yeah that's what i was trying to and, you know, I had my office like this, all with, with different fabrics for Pooh and Jenny Bevan, our costume designer, knitting the red sweater and picking out the red. And we then created it in the lives, the version of Pooh, and then we had to transform that in a, into the digital version. It was very tricky to, to get there, even with the facial expression, that they're not too much, not too cartoony, to hold it back, Jim Cummings' performance. I mean, it was a combination of bringing Jim in back, because at the beginning it was, you know, he was very much used to cartoon, which is much, because it's a cartoon, much more over the top. So now suddenly Pooh is, it's, a, it's we, I wanted to go back to the Shepherd drawings, the early, like, origin story, how Pooh, how Pooh was created, and he was this sort of well, has a little wear and tear on him, because the, the boy played with him, and you have you get you getting this feel that you really this was a bear that was played with and hugged and and because I think that would add to the uh, emotional patina of mm. them separating and him leaving for boarding school and leaving Pooh behind, and which then ultimately in the in the moment and obviously when he returns to Anadeko Woods when he asks him, did you leave me? Is is that uh, is that thing how we all leave our childhood behind? We all lose our child and ultimately him the 
journey of finding it again. And you know, it's it's interesting because the story is very simple, mm-hmm. but that simplicity I thought was important for because that's how Pooh is. Pooh is simple. You don't want to have it compli- complicated. And ultimately, I find life is should be simple. Mm-hmm. That's how Pooh sees us, and these Poohisms and the Tao of Pooh reduces everything just to this uh, this pure essence. What's important in life is to. To, to spend time with the people you love, to enjoy the things you do. Mm-hmm. And we all don't do that enough. No matter who you are, you never find enough time to spend the time with people you love. And it's interesting, I, you know, how it came about. I was, was on a plane with my daughter. We were going on a vacation, and my daughter was watching uh, on an iPad like this. She's six at that time, Pooh cartoon. She looks, and then I'm looking at it, and suddenly she took him, said, you know what, Dad, you should make really make a movie I can watch. I can't watch any of your movies. <laughs> one is the, the zombies, the other one is this. I can't watch any of these movies. And then she said, can't you make some of me? I said, why don't we make a pool? Uh, and then she said, yeah, why don't we make pool? And, that's, and then I came back and said, okay, I'm going to find something to make for her. And that's all, when the stars align. Yeah, well, the stars also align for you with the music in this film. Number one, you've got your score, but also the subtlety of bringing in just the tinkling ivories of the Winnie the Pooh song, Haunting, mm-hmm. is an under, mm-hmm. undercurrent. And then you've got Richard Sherman yeah. writing more songs for you. How important was that to this film and to you personally? You know, I, Richard Sherman is, I'm, I'm such an admirer of the Sherman brothers, of all the, you know, the legacy, what the work they have done is extraordinary. So I thought if I can get, you know, he's almost was 90, I think, or 91. I said if I can get one song out of Richard Sherman, I'm being blessed. He's <laughs> a blessing for the movie. So so I'm, I called him up said, look, Richard, send you the script. He called me back, oh, I read the script, fantastic piece. I'm going to write you something. I said, yeah, I just wanted one song. And I didn't. I said at the beginning, when he says goodbye, they can say a little song for him before Eeyore does his little poem. He said, okay. So then he calls me back a couple of days later and he says, says, all right, uh, on the phone, he says, uh, all right, I'm going to play the song for you. Who plays the song? I said, okay. So I have it on speakerphone. I'm in the car driving back from the set. He's at his house starting to play the piano and singing for me into his phone. And I literally just start, like, first I get goosebumps, then I start almost crying. And then at the end, I'm, after that, he sends a second song. And the third song, I said, well, how many songs did he write? <laughs> and then he sends the third song, and I'm literally in tears in the car. And I said, Richard, this is beautiful. And then I said, why do I, why, I didn't record this. Can you, can you please sing that again? <laughs> I didn't hear it properly, Richard. And he said, what? <laughs> I didn't hear it properly. You have to sing it again. I have to record this right now. So I recorded uh, the song. I don't have it as a new phone. I don't, otherwise, we would play it for you because it's the most beautiful, heartbreaking thing, him playing this song on the piano. And uh, I didn't, you know, the other two songs, I didn't have a place, so I thought I have to put the songs in. So that came up then with the idea to do the beach scene and stick a piano on a beach and have him play the song and sing. And that's, that is just so much fun. That, uh, that's perfect. It's like, yeah. Well, what kind of challenges did this film present for you because of wanting Pooh and his friends to be so lifelike and you're shooting outside You've got Mother Nature influencing. You've got woods. You've got leaves. You've got rocks. You've got rills. You've got just such everything in here. Yeah, it's also interesting talking about the Mother Nature. We were very, you know, I did a couple of movies in, in England. Uh, and my first one was actually Finding Neverland, uh, which was sort of in a, in a... I always wanted to find that magic reels piece again. But the weather can be so 
tricky in London and because it rains and it's sun, then it rains again. It's uh, no continuity. And I already got a headache thinking about that because we had so much exterior in the woods. And somehow this, again, we were in this film, we were so blessed. The, the clouds were there when we needed them. The sun was there when we needed them. Like at that, when we had that log with the, where, where they always meet the beginning, middle and end, we had the perfect cloud situation. Okay, now when he woke up in the morning, it was cloudy. Then when, when we had shot on the log, the sun suddenly was setting. I said, that's a sunset I have never seen before. It's like you could wait weeks for a sunset like that. That was pretty, you know, very blessed. That's the magic of poo. <laughs> yes, it is. I, that's how I felt it. I mean, literally, I bought into the magic of poo suddenly. <laughs> I said, how did this all happen? It's like, it's gone went so smooth. Yeah, the the real world, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, in London, I, I wanted at the time also it was always pretty foggy and because of the coal a little dirty and we have very little greenery it's all pretty much grey because it's sort of metaphorical for his world and then he escapes to the country and the, the and the country gets obviously greener and more lush and, and, and he enters first to the Hundred Acre Woods which to begin with is very, again very foggy he can't find his way and until he basically comes out of the heffalon pit and the sun comes out and it becomes the color seems it becomes more lush and and him you know after beating the heffalon out of himself <laughs> the heffalon battle he sort of finds him uh, uh, like ultimately beating fighting his own demon obviously uh, pretending and, and but uh, ultimate fights his own demon and then coming out the other side on the log where he comes to realization you know who he is and what he has become, and that's sort of the, the, with the sun setting. And from then on, you know, it was uh, trying to uh, introduce more of a lusher tone. And of course, you've got that you guys great. Got it all. You've got that great <laughs> visual shift where he's in the heffalump pit. Yeah. It rains, and then he's floated to the top, and you yeah. open with that beautiful ball of sun coming yeah. through the tree, the green trees, yeah, exactly. and your whole tone yeah. shifts. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely. Beautifully done from an emotional and visual visual standpoint. Thank you. You, you guys enjoyed it so much. <laughs> and of course, piggybacking on that, you know what you and Matthias do with your use of the extreme close up and your close ups, yeah. very judicious. But when you use them, they're magical. They're priceless, and you can freeze frame each one of them, and it just speaks volumes. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that's that's how. Uh, you know how I truly, uh, I I felt we need to. It's also handheld, so we 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 blocked it and then, then we shot these plates. And I, I said to the VFX guy, the animator, I said we need to get these close-ups right because there will be gold. And if we get in there, you feel like really connecting with these animals, mm -hmm. them making decisions and moving out, and and that was sort of really important. Mark, you have given us so many incredible stories on film. As a, as a filmmaker, what has filmmaking given you? What gift has it given to you? Um, you know, filmmaking has, has given me always... I mean, it's it's one hand, it, it's, uh, at the beginning, it definitely... Because, you know, I grew up without... Uh, my parents had no television at home, so I had no entertainment. So I always... We lived in a forest, so I always went out and, and created my own stories. And it was always uh, an escapism, my imagination of... Uh, of basically, um, it, it uh, was an es escapism of uh, of basically, but uh, he uh, so it was always I had to create my own uh, entertainment and and it was always an escapism, and ultimately, 
I I'm always believe that stories can change the world and can affect you. And because they affected me growing up and they were an escapism for me once I got into movies. And, and I, I feel like that it's if you like movies, sometimes a movie or you don't, it still raises questions and you can, you know, you entertain, you can make people laugh and cry, but at the same time, you can also inspire people. And I think it's a great medium to for inspiration and that, that what it did to me and I, I think we're here as a as on this planet as all of us humans we're all interconnected and and we all have a the, but the, the, for me at least it is the key is to to grow and become more conscious while we're here and and uh, and to become a better person at the end of the day and it's so hard because you you constantly chiseled back with so so much you know, either it's disappointment or anger, and so many people get, and people I know who I truly love, you can, suddenly they get older, become angry or disillusioned, or, or they didn't live their dreams, or didn't do this, and I think I'm like the, the, the optimist, if the boat would sink, I still would say, no, 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 we're not sinking, <laughs> there's, there's, there's still a life, drive. but I just uh, always believe that there, there's, there's light and hope at the end of the tunnel, and, and I think that's the only way I can keep going and, and love what I, what I do is, is to have that mindset even if everything about me crumbles like the world sometimes seems it's going to crumble and that was Mark Forster director of Christopher Robin and one dad who made a film that his daughter could watch because yes yeah, seriously when you look at some of his other films Monsters Ball, World War Z Machine Gun Preacher and not so much for a little one uh, but the whole family can now enjoy Christopher Robin. And now going from one dad doing something for his daughter to another dad doing something for his daughter. Welcome, welcome, Norm Elagem. Did I say your last name right, Norm? You did. It's Elagem. Elagem. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today on Behind the Lens. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I uh, I have to tell you, I read the entire book from me to you. I teared up. I can't tell you how many times you need to give a disclaimer with this book. Tissues are mandatory. You should have gotten uh, some kind of marketing deal with Kleenex. Um, oh, my gosh. That's so funny. Uh, because this is every dad and daughter in the world will love this. And my dad hated to read well, thank books, you. but I guarantee you if he were still alive, even he would read certain chapters in here in particular, um, such as the color of money. Um, you really touch on all those fun dad moments in life. I got to tell you, Norm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I, I, I will tell you, I will, I will tell you for starters as as part of the deal, I got to read the book for Audible, and I told the sound engineer when I got there that, with apology, I was going to break down and cry at least six or seven times during the reading of it myself, and I did. So I understand what you're saying. Only only broke down six or seven times? Uh, I, I think you're, you're, <laughs> yeah. hed you're hedging there. You're hedging there. I'd say more okay, like 16 or, 16 or 17. Where, I mean, this is such a beautiful book. It is a year's worth of all of these great love letters 
These are truly love letters to your daughter, who was, what, 11 or so yes. when you wrote these. And you've held on to this until now she's older and can really appreciate the wisdom of dad. Because a lot of this wisdom at 11, uh-uh, not going to listen. But, <laughs> but once you get well, to those... Let's... To those later years, and even as an adult, you're going to listen and cherish every word in here. Thank you. That's so kind of you. And it's funny because you hit on exactly the reason that I wrote these letters, because I was already, I was a bit of an older dad by the time that she was born. And when you're 10 or 11 years old, you have no capacity, no interest uh, in hearing themes about life and love and courage and the color of money, as you say. Um, so I just wanted to lay it all down for her, and I decided that I was going to write her a letter a week for a year. And that's, in fact, what I did. I mean, when did you decide to turn the—and uh, your life lessons in here— were these things that were, were these things that were happening to you at those moments or issues you were facing— or was it just you would just sit down one week and think, I'm going to tackle this subject. I'm going to tackle allowances. I'm going to talk about the joy of just being a child before you need to tackle responsibilities. Um, how did you decide on these weekly love letter themes? Well, I think that it was a little bit of both. In other words, sometimes I would have an idea that I wanted to write about, and then sometimes something was going on in the world or in her life or in my life that just presented itself. You know, one of the most difficult letters to write um, was the letter that I wrote to her about my sister dying because I wrote it as she was dying. Wow. And so... You know, that was happening, and not only was I trying to teach her about death and what that means and honor and eulogize my sister, but at the same time, I myself was coming to grips with the mm -hmm. fact that my sister was dying. So that just happened to be going on, and I wrote it. Um, the letter that you referenced, which is much lighter and talked about, you know, the fun of just being a kid in the summer, mm -hmm. literally happened because... She was on summer vacation, and I wanted to teach her something, and she told me she wasn't going to learn anything during the summer months. And, and that's how I got uh, excited to write that letter. Well, yeah, how cathartic was this process for you as a dad? Because this is twofold. Number one, it gets all of your feelings and your love for your daughter it, just pouring out pen to paper. But also, it's a legacy that you leave her. And as you mentioned with your sister, you know, it allows you to really come to terms with events that have helped shape your life. So I'm curious about the cathartic nature for yourself. Well, I think writing this book was incredibly cathartic for me, incredibly fulfilling to me. When I started writing these letters, you know, people ask me all the time, when did you set out to become an author? And I said, I really didn't set out to become an author. I set out to write letters to my daughter, and it kind of went from there. One of the and I really wanted to communicate to my daughter. I wanted to take the time to 
tell her how much I loved her, and by the way, and, and how much I love my other daughters and my family and all that. What I never contemplated was how fulfilling this would be for me in actually writing the book, writing the letters and writing the book. When did you decide to turn this into a book? I never decided to turn it into a book. Um, Who decided for you? <laughs> and well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the story because a lot of people, when even as I was writing it, and it was a blog. At first, it was a blog that was quite widely read, and a lot of my friends and others who were reading were saying, "Oh my God, this should be a book. You should turn this into a book." And I just never thought about it. I never really did it. And then about a year ago, a friend of mine, it was very serendipitous, a friend of mine who happens to be a book agent, friended me randomly on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And so when, I guess in looking at my Facebook page, he ran across the blog and read it and called me up and said, you know, Norm, this could be a book. And I said, well, look, if you can set us a book, knock yourself out. <laughs> and he did. And he did. What an easy client you are. Boy, oh boy. Yes. Well, the the most difficult thing when, when he told me he had sold it as a book was I had to go to not just my daughter, Mackenzie, but my whole family and say, there's a publisher who wants to publish this book. How do you feel about that? Ah, those evil releases came into play. Uh -huh. Well, not so much releases of my family. <laughs> I, just wanted to, I just wanted to make sure that they felt good about it. And obviously they did, considering that the book is now, as of August 7th, is now out here for everybody to read and enjoy. Yes. You know, what, yes. You know, how did Mackenzie feel about this when you presented her with the letters? You mean when I initially wrote the letters? Or, or when you initially showed them to her? Well... You know, I think that when I first wrote the letters, she wasn't really old enough to savor them. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she thought much about them other than, oh, that's nice. My dad is writing letters to me, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as she's gotten a little bit older, and certainly now the book being published, I think she has gotten, look, excited that her dad... Uh, <laughs> you know, wrote a book for and about her. Mm -hmm. Has she come up to you? But and now she's 16 and a half. You know, now she's, now she's a teenager and too cool for school. Uh, but I do, think, I do think she still enjoys it. Has she come up to you at all and said, Hey, Dad, you know, that thing in the book you said, you're right. Have we gotten any of those moments yet? <laughs> no. If anything, she has said, Dad... I love you, but you're so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I mean, very well established in the television and film industry, Norm, as a producer, as a talent manager. Yes. You know, how has this transition now been for you, taking on this whole new world, a, a, a literary world? And now you're the talent. In question, I, I'm not sure that I've... Yeah, I'm not sure I've transitioned into a new job. I, I am, as to your point, I am a talent manager and producer. This is something that just sort of happened. I'm enjoying the experience. I'm loving the fact that my family uh, is enjoying it. I, I 
it's, I find it very fulfilling that people are reading it and telling me how much they're enjoying the book. And, you know, they point to different letters that say, oh, my God, this, this really resonated with me. Um, that, that stuff I'm really enjoying. And I, I enjoy talking about the book and, and what I wrote. But I, I wouldn't say I have a new career in front of me. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to stick with producing and management. That's safe. Yes, I am. Your clients it are... feels it feels infinitely easier. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I do want to ask you because you have such a varied, uh, you know, uh, your projects. You go from Black Jesus, uh, producing Black Jesus, Jesus, Trevor Noah, who is one of your clients, his TV special, Afraid of yes. the Dark, and you've got a movie that's coming out that I'm looking forward to seeing, Simple Wedding. Um, that I can't, yeah. that I can't wait to see. Showray's in it. Rita Wilson is in it. Peter McKenzie, who can do no wrong in my book. I mean, you have such yes, he's wonderful. You have such diversity in the projects that you shepherd, in the projects you produce, produce, and in the talent whom you manage. What is your core philosophy and approach to your quote-unquote day job? Well, it's it's a wonderful question, and, you know, just talking about Simple Wedding for a minute, the film is having its world premiere uh, next month at the L.A. Film Festival, so I hope you will come and watch the movie. Uh, But what I will say about the projects that I produce and what I will say about the artists that I represent, I look for people who have fresh voices, people who have interesting things to say to the world, whether they are as actors or writers or directors or comedians, whatever it may be. And I think that when I find people like that, I get excited and I get passionate because I don't have those skills, right? I mean, I, I, I say in the book that other than maybe writing this particular book, the creative gene has probably eluded me. But what I do have is a passion for artists and for the arts. And when I come across artists that I can help tell their stories, make a living, living, you know, realizing their artistic dreams, gosh, that's fulfilling to me. Mm. You know, I'm very happy that you said Simple Wedding because I saw that on the lineup for LAFF. Um, because I've covered yes. every, I've covered every single LAFF, and something tells me somebody's going to have to get me a link to see this before, with the hope that it makes my annual <laughs> opening day must see festival films column. I mean, it's you know, it. it I, I well, let's let's talk offline. <laughs> let's talk offline. We'll see what we can do. No, this was one of the ones that I had already earmarked because Showray was in it. I, I just absolutely yeah, love a, her. First of all, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful film. Shorey, I mean, everyone you mentioned, right? Shorey is an amazing actress. Yeah. Rita was one in the movie. Peter, um, we manage uh, Sara Zandier, who is the writer director mm-hmm. of the film, and also uh, Cara Grammy, who is the young star of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful film. It's really a one. We're very proud of it. Yeah. We're very proud of it. Well, you know, and Rita's on a high right now with the success of producing Mamma Mia two, um, and Shoray. Yeah. I mean, what she did, what she did in the Promise on the Armenian genocide, it was just absolutely incredible. Um, so, yeah, Shoray is a, is a really gifted actor. 
That was that was the that was for me. That was the little the fireworks went off for me when I saw that she was in the film. No. So uh, no, that, you know it's interesting. It, it's interesting. One of the chapters in the book where I talk about the arts, right, mm-hmm. and what where up to your earlier question, how I get passionate. You know, when you see someone like Shorey act or Rita or Tara or Peter, it just reminds you of the importance of art in the world and in terms of moving the human race forward and what all that can mean. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel so blessed, both as a manager and as a producer, to to do that. And it just, it does feel a bit like I'm moving the human race forward in my own little way. Yeah, and And that's, by the way, part of what I'm trying to tell my daughter in this book. That's and that's exactly what you do try and tell her. And of course, the art section that is chapter seventeen. But you also you take a look at history. You share the secrets of history in chapter thirty-eight, which I love. Um, is an anecdote about Bill Clinton. Um, you cover yeah. you cover everything in this incredible book, Norm. From media, I mean, it's you've, you've oh my hit gosh. Every, every topic. That a child, be it be it a son, daughter, or a daughter, is going to come to their parent about. I honestly wish this book had been around when I was growing up. I I ser- I well, <laughs> mean that with all sincerity, um, because I was well. From, thank I, you. I was it, from the generation where you don't ask questions. The, <laughs> where you don't? Yes, yes. Well. I, I think that one of the very important things about being a parent, and a human being, by the way, mm-hmm. is to tell the people you love how much you love them while you still can. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about this book, of the people who have read it so far, people who don't necessarily have children have said to me, and younger people have said to me, this is so amazing, I wish my dad had written me letters like yeah. that. And then people who have children have said to me, oh, my God, I should start writing letters to my children. So, you know, I guess the, you're the demographic for this book if you've had parents or are one. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, I'm not a parent. I'm an aunt with four nephews. There you go. And boy, oh, boy, there you, go. you know, they need to read this book. Two of them are young, in their teens, the perfect age for this. The other two are in their 20s and think they know everything. Perfect for them, too. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Norm, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. This has just been a pure delight. I would love to have you come back on and talk to you more about your work, your films, and the book. I hope you will at some point. Oh, my God, I would be delighted to do it. Just invite me anytime, and it will be my pleasure. And thank you. Thank you for reading the book. I'm so happy you enjoyed the book. Uh, it's really, it means a lot. And of course, ev- every dad out there needs to read chapter 13 on daddy sitting. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you you have humor, you have poignancy, you have heart, but on every single page, there, so, there's love. I'll tell you, my favorite chapters to write yes. was the chapter on the birds and the bees. Oh, God. <laughs> because I think I was, you know, it's such an awkward and embarrassing thing for a father to discuss with his daughter. Yeah. And it, I had fun writing it because I think I captured that awkwardness and embarrassment in a humorous way. I, I definitely think you did. You brought so much humor into this, and humor is really what takes you over those hurdles 
of uncomfortable situations more often than not. And uh, and I think Indeed. and I think that works. Re- you use that to your advantage here. So don't ever say you're not an author. You have authored an incredible, well, thank an incredible you. book, Norm. Thank you, thank you. I can make you laugh a bit and cry a bit and learn a bit. I've done it. I've done my job. Well, consider yourself a success because you have. Thank you. Oh, Norm, thank, thank you, you so, much. so much. And I'll talk to you again soon. Sounds great. Take care. Bye bye. And that was Norm Elagem with From Me to You. And actually, for our Facebook audience there, you can see this is, but it's in color. I printed in black and white. Um, find it, get it, read it. It's fabulous. And now, now we're going to talk to the creator of one pretty darn funny movie. The writer, director, and editor, Nick Scowen. Pretty bad actress. Oh, my God, Nick. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, my God. I had Heather, Heather was on the show, Heather McComb was on the show last week. Um, the movie is hilarious. The movie is absolutely oh, hilarious. And I know it, you know, it's like you shot this quite a while ago. It's been sitting around just waiting, just waiting. Uh, and I think the release time now is perfect for the zeitgeist that we are in with paparazzi and fans and but where did this whole idea come from? Because it is just, it's so novel, it's creative, and yet you touch on so many elements that have happened in real life as well as cinematic moments. Yeah, I mean, any kind of movie or creative endeavor, you always are, are comes from a bunch of different, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's like a synthesis of all these things that you've input. And so, like, I grew up in a house where my mom read Star Magazine and the National Enquirer and People Magazine. And so, you know, uh, it was a ta- I guess we were a tabloid household mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. And, and then um, that was always in my mind. If, and I wasn't always a fan of, like, I, you know, I don't want to know what the stars' lives are like. I'm just happy seeing them on the screen playing these characters. Right. Um, and, you know, then I saw, uh, uh, an interview that Larry King was doing, um, with, uh, Teresa Saldana, who was in Raging Bull, mm-hmm. uh, talking about this terrible attack that she had, uh, suffered yeah. where a stalker had tracked her down and she had nearly died and it was horrible. And, uh, you know, Larry... Is about to, it's like, oh, can you tell us what that was like? And then he's, he's like, oh, wait, wait, we have a clip. Let's let's roll the clip from the movie. And I was like, what movie clip? And then they, they cut to a, a clip of a TV movie where she's playing herself yep. getting attacked by the attacker and basically recreating this horrible event to her that had happened to her. Uh, and when Larry comes back from the clip, you know, he, he's like, oh, you know, how, why did you do this? And she, you know, she had a great answer, which... She was trying to get a law passed about an anti-stalking law, and she wanted to, to bring more awareness to it. But just, it, it got the, the ball rolling of like, oh yeah, like there are a lot of people who will take a, a tragedy or a, a terrible thing that happens to them and, uh, you know, try to exploit it for their careers, or they'll embellish it, you know, like a million uh, little pieces, like mm-hmm. that book that had come out. And, 
and so it just seemed to be, to be a thing that I would see more and more of of people looking to take advantage of of tragedy versus processing it and and doing something positive with it, like like she had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I remember when the whole when the stalking and the attack went down with Teresa Saldana. It was all over the news, and then that was a very big deal that she chose to play herself in the movie version of of that. Um, because at that point, that was even after uh, the Rebecca Schaefer murder, where somebody got in her DMV records mm. and showed up at her house and killed her. Uh, and then that prompted yeah. the Rebecca Schaefer law. Um, so it's really empowering to see, you know, people that are willing to take charge. And I love that you use that as a basis here, as an inspiration. Because here you have somebody who is a self-destruct train wreck. Uh, in the film, that is Heather's character of Gloria, a.k.a. her her child star alter ego character of Trudy, which, by the way, did you write the Trudy song lyrics? <laughs> I, I did. My uh, my composer oh, uh, did the music, and he reminded me, uh, we had a Q&A screening, and he was like, oh, yeah, you just called and left a voicemail singing the lyrics. <laughs> And, uh, he, and he was like, and I was like, oh, I don't know if that's good. And he was like, yeah, no, I'll just use those, and that's the song. So yeah, which is like it's something I came up with and left in a voicemail. Apparently, I, I got news for you. I couldn't get that out of my head for days. Yeah, it, it is. It's definitely. I don't know. I think they call it like an earworm or whatever. Where yes. it's a song that it's just too catchy. It's too, yeah. too catchy for its own good. Yes, uh, but it fits. And it's one of the things that, because you have structured, you have an interesting balance with this film. Because you, ha- you tackle some very serious issues here. Uh, the character, the now adult actress who, ca- actress who cannot make the transition from child actor to adult actor. She's got drug issues. She's got alcohol issues. She's been in rehab. She's struggling. We see this unfolding in the tabloids. We've been seeing it unfolding for a number of years with some very high-profile talent. Um, and you tackle this, and on, on the one hand, you add humor to it and with what might be absurdity of this actress getting kidnapped. But when you take a step back, you're really digging into the gravitas of the zeitgeist in which we live. And, but somehow you find a balance. So I'm curious how you approached and how you managed to find that balance on the page and then working with Milton, your, Milton Santiago, your cinematographer, in creating your visuals to marry with that. Because it is, it's a very fine line that you walk here. You could have gone very preachy or you could have turned it into a parody and you didn't. Yeah, it was, I mean, that was probably the biggest challenge from the very beginning, you know, I worked on the script for for years, and uh, you know I, I, the thing I love about a good satire, like even like um, something like Network, mm-hmm. where you can take a serious thing and uh, you can get people to start talking about it because you you couch it in humor and get some laughs out of people, and that lets you kind of sneak around their defense to get some ideas in, and so that was. That's kind of always the approach I had, which is I wanted to... Yeah, I'm fascinated by, by child stars. And, you know, a lot of them, especially earlier, like Gary Coleman or, or people like that, where, you know, they were 
supporting their families and often taken advantage of by their families. And, you know, sometimes it wasn't even necessarily their choice. You know, they're, they're, the Olsen twins are, they're, they're literally babies when they start. They yep. have no, <laughs> they didn't have any, you know, agency in this decision. And so I, I have been fascinated by what happens to them when they grow up and they, they get discarded by this industry that they're like, Oh, well, you know, the industry's used them up and, and spit them out. And, you know, their whole identity is tied to being an actor, and now they can't do the one thing that, that they're passionate about. And so I try to put all of that in, in Heather's character of Gloria in the film. And so that was always a, a, a challenge of just, okay, so I want to make these points. I want to talk about the kind of culture that we've created where it's, Someone's value is only tied to however long we decide, and when their 15 minutes are up, we don't need them anymore. Mm-hmm. And but still make people make it entertaining. And so with Milton, we we you know we we had a lot of discussions about how can we uh, make this you know dark but not too dark. Right. You know how can we make it? You still laugh even in these these tense moments and and so a lot of it is just like um how we frame the shot where the like there's a scene where, where uh danny woodburn who plays uh the, the manager <laughs> al the manager so uh their assistant and you know we, we were like oh if we have the two of them together it it makes it funny to see her reaction to him discussing a dead body and it's like i don't know why that makes talking about dead body funny but something about the way she reacts to it does it. And, and so it was finding those moments of, of of levity within the serious situation. Well, and then you, where you also excelled and what helps greatly with that is your, are your casting choices. And particularly for the, the character of Al as a manager, Danny Woodburn is absolutely, I can think of nobody who could play that role and get away with, I mean, get away scot-free with the comments and remarks that comes out of his mouth these are the kind of characters he's perfected. Uh, he played, uh, you know, an attorney, an immigration lawyer on bones. Um, very, you know, we've got murder and we've got all these immigrants and all these people that have been held, you know, captive. And now they want to become citizens. And so, and he played it with a slight bit of snark. And he can pull that off. Not everybody can do that. So, I mean, watching Danny in the role of Al as he's going back and forth between producers and it's like, okay, yeah, if we craft the script and, oh, let's have her do this and, let's, oh, let's have this happen. And for those in the business, you also know that there's so much truth rooted in that as to what's going on. Uh, I think one of, the, per- yeah, one of yeah. the perfect examples now is the rescue of the boys in Thailand before they were even out of the cave and rescued and safe and sound. Hollywood, there are already people talking about wheeling and dealing to make a film. Uh, yeah, well, it was like one of those things where now it's a it's a race to see who can can do it first, who can get it done first. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And you really can't, even though you wrote this and and you did this because this was on what the 2012 festival circuit. Um, yeah, thereabouts. I mean, even then, you tapped into it, and it's only become more prominent since you made the film. Uh, and that, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I mean, it's pretty great. It's like one of the things I, you hope when you make something like this, that it, it has that kind of effect where it's not going to go away 
right away. Whereas, yeah, like, uh, you know, like I said, with Network, when that first came out, you know, it seemed like, oh, that's ridiculous. TV's never going to become, become like that. And if you watch TV today, it's like, oh, that he didn't go far enough. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, a, a perfect example today is go go see Black Klansman. Um, yeah. I, it, it is uh, took place in 1975. It's as timely today as it was in 1975, and even more so. Um, so it's the more the more things change, the more they stay the same, and and the same is definitely true of the industry that is Hollywood. Um, and you really you capture that so well, and of course, then you bring in the very brilliant Stephanie Hodes as Donnie. Um, Gloria's yeah. n- number one fan. All I kept thinking is Kathy Bates in Misery. Uh, number one fan <laughs> heads, you know, heads the fan club, the fan club of one, does the newsletter for one. Um, but she also, she gravitated towards the character of Trudy and the person of Gloria because she didn't fit. She, you know, she can't make her life work either. And it's very interesting um, to see what you develop there with these two female characters and the journey you yeah. take well, I, them on. I always on. try and... It's the idea of, like, everyone's the hero of their own movie, and this kind of applies to, to Stephanie or Danny, which is even if they're people who you don't like a behavior they're doing or, or something, you if, they're, if they feel like they are trying to do the best, then you you'll you'll go along with it, yeah. you know. As long as it doesn't feel like they're just doing it for comedy's sake or whatever, but you believe that you know Stephanie is like a lot of people, especially and again, even more now today, where people yeah. feel isolated. We're in this online culture where some people feel closer to this person that they've never met, but who they've been following on Instagram, and yeah. they see them their dog and they see where they eat and where they go on vacation and they form these bonds with with someone who they've they haven't had any interactions with in real life and if they saw that person would you know the reaction would be like oh i know this person they're one of my friends but that that human being on the other side of the instagram post has no idea who they are you know and and it's uh yeah so it's just an interesting era we live in where you can feel like you know someone so intimately and in fact they've never met you before and they have no idea who you are yeah you know one one of the keys to making pretty bad actress work and making it a pretty darn good film uh is the editing your pacing is wonderfully executed nick so i'm curious because you did editing uh, you edited the film. How, yeah. how did that come into play? Because, number one, we're dealing with a low-budget, no-budget film. So everywhere you can cost-cut, everywhere you can save time, saves money. And as, since you're directing, and you're also going to be editing, were you editing as you went? Were you editing in your head? Was that helping you from a directorial standpoint as to efficiency and expediency? It definitely helps. It's uh, it's funny. Me and uh, my cinematographer uh, Milton uh, Santiago both have a background in editing, and so we're both very conscious of knowing. Okay, do we have all the elements to make this scene work? Are, are we, you know, are we missing anything? Uh, is there a close up we need or an insert shot we need? You know, we, we're both very conscious of that. 
And, you know, it's funny, I pulled the producers, I was like, I'm probably going to be the first director you've ever worked with whose director's cut is shorter than the final film, because <laughs> it's just in my in my nature that it's just, just cut away and just try and make things as tight as possible. And so, you know, it was one of those things where they'd be like, oh, no, no, you got to let that breathe a little more, because in my mind, I just want to, you know, push forward and ahead so it, it was good to have oh my you know going in like knowing okay i'm gonna i'm gonna probably get a cup this too much and you guys just reel me back and tell me when <laughs> when we need to, to let the audience breathe a little well yeah and you do need to have it a certain length so it can qualify as a feature film and not a somewhere in between <laughs> yeah, yeah. a short and a feature film oh my god oh my god so i've got i have to ask you the big question because she is amazing how did you find Stephanie Hodes to play Donnie, Gloria's number one fan? She is yeah, yeah. outstanding. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, she was... We, I've actually, i kind of known her for years. We had done a, a short film together that she had acted in and that I had edited and that the... Uh, producer of my film was the director of and so we had all kind of worked together on that short and uh the short had turned out really well and so then um when uh the, the director of that short then became the producer on this film it was like one of those things so like well i think we'll 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 go with stephanie who we'd like and we saw a lot of people a lot of people came in for auditions so we just kept co- coming back to stephanie and just be like i think she just has the right mix of the underdog who you you want to want to root for, despite you know whatever she may be doing right or wrong, you, you still just have this. She can get this compassion out of you uh, and make you care about her and make you laugh, and she just had all the elements that you know you just wanted in that role. She uh, she knocks it out of the park. Um, now, how did you come up with the costume and the hair and the look for the character of Donnie? Uh, because from wearing, you know, white tights on a stockier little body and the mismatched clothes and yet the long, you know, pigtails with bows. I mean, just one look summarized. We needed no backstory. One look at her and we knew exactly who she was, exactly who she was in, you know, within the realm of high school and junior high uh, and the popularity contest. How did you develop that look? Uh, because that, I mean, it's, a, it's another expeditious way to cut down on having to give expository writing to explain stuff. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, it, 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 it started, it was based off of the, the Trudy Cutie t- fake TV show that we created. Uh-huh. Um, where when I was talking to the costume designer, you know, trying to figure out Stephanie's look, we were like, I was like, basically, I want her to be, you know, in the TV show, there's Trudy Cutie, which was, you know, almost like the, the Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana thing, where there's two sides yep. to this character. And so I was like, okay, so Donnie, which is uh, Stephanie's character, she's going to be one half, and the other half is going to be the, the, the John Hensley's character, so that they both have taken, like, a different part of this character from this TV show and latched onto it. But, you know, Donnie isn't as cool as the Trudy Cutie character, so her ensemble isn't going to quite work just as well. So it's like the nerdy version of her trying to 
to look like the character that she loves. You uh, know? I mean, it's uh, pure perfection. Because as I said, it's like one look and you know who this person is exactly. Um, but of course, then you do feed us some twists and turns in the third act that tell us we don't know who this person is exactly. Um, but we're not revealing yeah. them. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've got to ask you, what was the learning curve like for you jumping from short films into a bona fide feature despite wanting to do a director's cut that's shorter than the cut? <laughs> it is, uh, I mean, you you always think it's going to be a challenge, but it's a lot of it is just the, the, the number of people and the amount of time required to do it is, is just staggering. You know, like, uh, I just remember being on set one day and seeing the call sheet and being, being like, I don't even know who half these people are or what they're doing. And it's because there's behind the scenes while I'm setting up this scene, there's somebody else preparing the set over here. And, uh, it, it's, you just, you literally have like a little small army that you're, you're working with. And so that's the big thing. Usually with, you know, a short film, it's maybe a camera guy, a sound person, and maybe like, two or three other people, but it's a just a pretty small crew. And so that was kind of a big thing was learning how to manage that many people to get my vision across, make sure I took time to explain to like the costume designer of like, here's what we're doing, you know, with this, with this look and, mm -hmm. and making sure they understand, you know, what, how I want that to, to, to be. And, um, and then, yeah, just the time, time things where, like you said, you know, we've been working on this film for a while. And even when, our distributor was like, oh, we want to, we love this movie, we want to get it out in the world, and, you know, that was a year and a half ago, and it becomes a matter of finding the right time on the schedule for it to come out, and you mm -hmm. just, it's, that's something you don't think of, is like, oh, yeah, they have to find a good time, and it's it's that kind of thing of just, it's such a big process, it's a long process, that even when you know it's going to be a marathon, you feel like you've run one marathon, and they're like, okay, here you go, you got to run another one now, <laughs> you know? Now, I know uh, Pretty Bad Actress came out on August 10th. Now, are we into digital, online, any of that right now so everybody can find it? Yes, it's, uh, yeah, it's available everywhere now. It's on um, you know, iTunes or Amazon um, and all the major portals. So um, if you go to the website, uh, prettybadactressmovie.com, you can click on the watch link and it'll take you to all the places that you can see it. And it's still in the theater right now in LA yeah. if you're in LA and want to see it, but for everyone else, you can, uh, you can find it online and get yourself a copy. And I mean, and trust me, people, you will laugh. You know, those of you that are, that are getting depressed cause you got to go back to school. School districts are starting back this week. Yeah. Get this, watch it. It'll take your mind off of everything and it will make you laugh. And you've got a really incredible twisty ending too. So I'll just put that out there for people. So now, what is next? What is next for you, Nick? Are you working on another film, um, another feature that's a real feature? I, I yeah, I've been you know writing and developing uh, another feature film to try and get going. And um, in the meantime, I've been working on a documentary with uh, uh, Julie Spiba, my producing partner, who's a comedy journalist. And we've been working on this uh, documentary about kind of comedy and 9-11 and how kind of comedy stopped and had to figure out what it was going to do after that and could we laugh again. And so it's been nice to have this pro that project to kind of work on while, while we wait for a pretty bad actress to finally get out into the world. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so we're, we're going to be releasing some, some 
preview clips of that soon, and then trying to get uh, yeah the next the next feature film going. Oh well, I can't wait to see too soon the comedy of nine eleven. Um, you like you like delving into the zeitgeist in which we live, don't you? I I do. I like it was funny. I was like, oh, I didn't really think of it, but I do like looking at these moments of how the darkness and comedy and how laughing can help us get through dark times and, and maybe it's just the world we live in now but it's like it's good to remind myself like yeah you can you can get a laugh even even at the darkest hour there's there's still a little bit of light there still a little bit of humor if you can if you can just track it down and find it oh, nick thank you so much for joining me on the show today this has been so much fun i was i've been looking forward to it even more so after having heather on the show last week and her talking about this film because I do, I I just laugh myself silly watching it. But and please, well, thank you for for taking the time to watch it. Ah, and please, you've got to come back on the show and also make sure when you release your clips for the comedy of nine eleven, make sure I get them and I'll toss them up on the behind the lens online website. Perfect, I will do that. Ah, Nick, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you again soon. All right, thank you, Debbie. Talk Thanks. to you later. Bye bye. And that was Nick Scown, Pretty Bad Actress, digital, online, pay-per-view, all of that cool stuff, and still in theaters if you're here in L.A. That is all the time we have today. Uh, I have a tentative guest for next week. I'm not going to say who it is, but um, I hope it all pans out, depending on if they get me a screening, into a screening, so I can see it before he's on. he's scheduled to be on the show. So, that's all the time we have today. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.